This morning, what the rest of us are going to do is talk about our priorities, both individually as Christians and our priorities as a church. So we'll take a break from our study of Matthew. We're in Matthew 26, and we'll probably wrap that up here shortly as we're getting closer and closer to the cross. And then, Lord willing, we'll start the book of Romans. Must be time for something. We're going to talk about our priorities, and I'll speak in terms of our priorities as a local church, but again, uh, since the local church is made up of individuals, all of these will apply to us as individuals as well, but really what we're trying to do is look at it from both sides, but again, I'll speak in terms of uh, what are our priorities as a local church, and I want to begin by giving you some reasons why I would want to talk about such a thing. Some reasons why we'd want to talk about this, some reasons why I as a pastor would want to remind you or inform you perhaps if you're not aware of what our priorities are. One reason would be because there actually are priorities for local churches. If you open up the New Testament and you read the Bible, you figure out rather quickly that there are certain things that must be done. There are certain things that are modeled, that are repeated over and over again. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out, after you read the New Testament, you, uh, like me, could sit down and say, here are the reoccurring themes. Here are the reoccurring uh, priorities. Therefore, if we're going to be a faithful Christian church, we, we would want to have these priorities for ourselves. So we're going to do this because there are, in fact, priorities. So we're going to highlight what those are. Another reason why we would want to talk about the priorities of a local church here at Omaha Bible Church would be because it's not up to us to decide what our priorities are. We want to talk about this because it's not up to us to decide what our priorities are. In Acts chapter 20, in the 28th verse, it says that Jesus bought the church with his own blood. He purchased the church. Therefore, using that, that, that slave market terminology, Jesus purchased us out of the slave market of sin, and now we belong to Him. The church is His. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus is the one who said He was going to build His church. His church? It's important that we remember we're going to look at priorities for the local church because... They're not our priorities, they're His priorities. And it's so easy for us to think somehow we can set the agenda, or somehow we can set the course, and and we're going to depend upon our own creativity, we're going to depend upon our own wisdom, we're going to depend upon what seems to be working right now in our culture, when in fact we need to remember, oh, Jesus says in His Word, these are to be our priorities. Oh, and yes, let's let's be reminded... It's not our church. It's His church. So if it's His church, He's going to set the tone. He's going to lay out the priorities. Another reason why I would want to talk about what our priorities are as a local church would be because it's simply really, really, really easy to forget. I've been reading through the Old Testament right now, one book at a time, getting ready for Sunday evenings as we're going through the series called Knowing God in the Old Testament. And right now I've read through Joshua, preparing for this. And there are lots of reoccurring themes, but unmistakably there is this theme that goes like this. God tells His people what to do, they say they'll do it, and they don't do it. God tells His people what to do, they say they'll do it, and they don't do it. God tells us, you get the pattern. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. God is speaking to them. And and they're saying, yes, God, and then in no time they don't do it. So it's a clear pattern, and it won't stop. I wish it would, but it won't stop after Joshua. It's just a pattern for the people of God in the Old Testament. And sometimes we tend to think, yeah, those Israelites. I'm sure glad we're part of the church. Well, (laughs) stop and think with me for a moment and, and, and think about why we have certain books in our New Testaments. You know, books like 1 Corinthians. Well, that's to give us that great wedding chapter that we can read at weddings. Well, it's not exactly why it was put in our New Testaments. Uh, The church at Corinth was a brand new church established by an apostle. So when when apostles spoke, God, God spoke. And they said, okay, we'll do it. And in no time at all, they are so far off of their priorities, it's not even funny. 
when you stop to think about it, there are other books too. You've got 1 Corinthians. How about Colossians? They're, they're losing sight of their, their priority of the sufficiency of Christ. Or how about Galatians? They're losing sight of their priority uh, on the gospel. We've got to remember that we can easily forget. Here we are as a local church and God has done great things. Despite my lack of tact as a pastor. God has done great things in the history of this local church. And and by God's grace, today would be a good day to praise God because some of these priorities, by the grace of God, we've tried to make priorities uh, for ourselves. But we must remember when we think about history, not just Old Testament history, not just New Testament history, but when we think about church history, there's a reoccurring theme. And the reoccurring theme is those who were once faithful aren't today. If history repeats itself, and it tends to do that, Omaha Bible Church will not be what it is today, one day. My favorite authors who uh, taught at the the great institutions and, and pastored these great churches, and we love to read their stuff, those places are spiritual Gravesites now, by and large. We would be very, very naive. We would be fooling ourselves if we concluded that because good things have been done, faithfulness to God's Word had been practiced and carried out at one point in time, that it will be tomorrow, that it will be the next day, that it will be in the next generation. We would be so arrogant to conclude that because we once did the right thing, we will always do the right thing. So we don't want to do that. And so that motivates me. It motivates me as a pastor to want to say, let's keep reminding ourselves. Let's keep reminding ourselves what our priorities must be so that by the grace of God, God might give us one more day of commitment to those priorities. And then take it a day at a time so that we might have one more week of faithfulness. So that where we're not being faithful, we might have a new day of faithfulness or a new week or a new month or a new year. Because we can't take it for granted. And that really motivates me. And the final thing, final reason why I'd want to talk about these priorities this morning would be because it's been a long time since we've talked about them. I hope in every sermon, in every Sunday school class, in every song, in every conversation, in one way or another, week in and week out, we, we are reminded over and over again of what, about what our priorities are. So I trust this is emphasized all the time on one level. But I think it's probably been, best to my, uh, according to my estimation, about seven years since I've preached a sermon like this that said, all right, let's remind ourselves formally what are the main things that we need to keep the main things. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. I have a list of ten priorities for us. I was so naive as to think maybe we would get done. And in the first hour, we got the first three done. So you would think... Uh, Jonathan asked me yesterday, how many sermons have you preached now, Dad? And we did the math, and it was kind of a fun exercise. And somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 sermons in my short little life, one would think that I could make a good estimation about how long it's going to take. But I can't, so I'll keep practicing. So we're going to do three this morning, Lord willing, and uh, we'll look at three priorities that we must grasp. I hope I I can get you to recommit as you would recommit your vows, so to speak. That these will be your priorities as an individual so they can be our priorities as a local church so that we can live to see another day of faithfulness to whatever degree, hopefully an increasing degree. But pray with me if you would. Father, thank you once again for this morning. And God, if there's anything we want to do, we want to act as if the church is not ours because it's not. It belongs to your great son. He is the rightful owner of it. He is the one who is building it. We want to seek to handle his church according to his revelation. And I would ask that you you would give us another day, another week, another year where we don't go backward, that we go forward even in glorifying you and honoring you. Lord, we are thankful for what you've done. We're thankful for what you're doing around the world in so many different places, in different lands, where folks, by your grace, are busy handling your church your way. It's a great thing, and we praise you for that. We praise you for history where it's been done. 
And we would ask that, that, that you might help us to be faithful to whatever degree we possibly can be. And we do rest in the fact that even though there's been compromise and fallout all throughout history, you've always been faithful to raise up people who would handle your church as if it were not their own. And we simply want to be a part of that. We want to see that continue. Help us to focus. Help us to think clearly. Help us to give you the praise and the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Priority number one. Priority number one is number one on the list on purpose. Priority number one is the glory of God. And I hope you're not thinking, oh no, he's going to talk about that again? Perhaps I hope you're thinking, oh, he talks about this a lot. And and, and that's why he's a good pastor. Because you have to keep the first thing the first thing. I hope you're thinking something more along those lines. And I mentioned those two statements because, you know what, we talk about the glory of God a lot. And that's intentional. And I hope it just is increasingly uh, done. We need to talk about the glory of God because the first priority we would have as Christians, the first priority we would have as a church would be God. God in His glory. And if you have a Bible, I'll ask you to turn to a passage. We won't look at it quite yet, but that would be 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is a passage we talk about a lot. That's intentional, and I hope you know it well. And if not, I hope you know it better after this morning. But in 1 Corinthians 10.31... We learn about the glory of God. But before we actually look at that passage, the reason I would say, and I I would try to say it with passion and, and as much enthusiasm as I can, and I could say, folks, as a church, we, we have to make this number one. For you as a Christian, for me as a Christian, we have to make this number one. The glory of God has to be number one. The reason is because it's God's number one. God's ultimate priority ends up being His own glory. And we see this from Genesis, and I know we say this a lot, but I'm not just doing it for effect, from Genesis to Revelation. And everything in between, there is a common theme. And it comes up over and over again from the very beginning, all throughout to the very end, it is the glory of God. You start with creation, and you see God creating and God creates, and God creates for lots of different reasons, but one reason God creates is to show that He can create. It is to show His power. It is to show His creativity. It is to show His wisdom. And we see this in Genesis. We see uh, this in uh, passages like Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 that refer back to Genesis. God is showing Himself in creation. He's showing His power in creation. He's showing His infinite wisdom in creation. Yes, we enjoy it. But that's not the ultimate end. You say, what about us being created in God's image? Surely that was for us. Well, stop and think about it. God makes us in His image so that we are His image bearers so that we reflect Him. So that that, that we learn something about God when we look at each other. So even God creating us in His, His image, His image is to glorify Him. And you say, well, okay, I understand that, but, but surely it's not all about God because after all, this great God loved us and He redeemed us and He forgave us and, and, and that's for us, right? Well, right, it is for us. And we certainly are the benefactors. And to think that, 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 that our sin is separated from God as far as the, the East is from the West and to think that God has justified us, that He's declared us perfect based upon not our perfection but the perfection of Christ, I mean, we are definitely the benefactors. But when you look at a passage like Ephesians 1, that God saves us, that God redeems us according to the glory of His grace. It's to glorify Him. To to think that, that we are saved from His wrath. To think that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. Well, well, why? What's the ultimate in that? Yes, it's so that we can be saved. Yes, it's so we can be forgiven. But the ultimate, you see in chapter 1 of Ephesians, to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's amazing. Ultimately, the reason God saved Pat Abendroth from the penalty of his sins is not for my benefit. Ultimately, 
It's so I can say, God, your grace is amazing. Which is to say, God, you are amazing. It's to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then you say, what about our spiritual growth? Well, well, what is our spiritual growth? What is our sanctification, if you want to use the technical term for it? Well, it's conforming us into the image of Christ. It's making us less and less like our sinful selves and more and more like Christ, who is God, which glorifies God. What about our glorification? Ultimately, according to Romans chapter 8, if God starts a work in you, He finishes it, and you will be glorified to the point where it says glorified, past tense. Well, 1 John tells us glorification is when we see Christ, we'll be made like Him. Oh, our glorification is for God's glory too. It's amazing to see this in the Scripture. It has to be our priority. I like the psalmist so much when the psalmist prays, and I would encourage you to learn from other godly men and women and the way they pray. In Psalm 79.9, which is one example of a psalm, uh, a prayer in Psalms uh, that emphasizes this, but in Psalm 79.9, the psalmist is praying to God and he's making requests to God, and you know what the ultimate driving force behind his prayer is? He says, for your name's sake. Ah. Now, I'm not sure that my priorities are all straight, but I'm, I'm praying that way more and more. I would encourage you to as well. Now, I'm asking God to help me with my priorities, and, and so I'm not just saying it because I know it's the right thing to say. But why do I pray for you fill in the blank? whether it be health, whether it be for a new job, whether it be for spiritual growth, whether it be for the health of someone else that I love, you fill in the blank. Ultimately, in the end, the best way to appeal to God is, God, do this in my life. Do it, do it because it's good for me, yes. Do it, do it because it's good for someone else, yes. But ultimately, in the end, God, do this. Answer my prayer for your name's sake. That is to say, God, do it so that you can show how great you are. Do it so you can glorify yourself through answering prayer. See, it's about His glory. Now, some of you might be thinking along about now. Now, if God does what He does ultimately for His glory, isn't that selfish? I think it's probably healthy to push it to that level to where you're asking yourself the question. God does everything He does for Himself ultimately, even though we benefit and it's real and genuine love and real and genuine benefit. He really cares for us. But ultimately, the ultimate aim is for His glory. Isn't that selfish? It would be if God were anyone other than God. Right? If there is only one true God, therefore the one true God is to be worshipped as the one and only true God, It makes sense that He would do everything for His own glory because He's the only God. In fact, if God did things ultimately for the glory of someone else, God would be what? An idolater. (laughs) He would be treating something or someone else as if they were God. And He's the only God. I think it's so helpful what, what certain... Bible teachers today are helping us recover what believers have seen throughout the ages many times, but for whatever reason we become so self-consumed and so self-centered, it's all about us. I'm thankful that, that certain Bible teachers, people like John Piper, have helped us recover this, something believers uh, in days gone by have, have, have believed and promoted. And he's, he's put it in certain terms that we can remember, put a certain twist on it verbally so we can remember it. And he reasons like this and says, okay, if the chief end of God... Or excuse me, if the chief end of man, mankind, is the glory of God, every catechism starts that way, what is the chief end of God? The chief end of man is to glorify God. The chief end of God is to glorify God too. And for it to not be that way would be for God to be an idolater. I don't know about you, but this, this is not something I learned day one as a Christian. But you read the Bible... Why does God do what He does? 
to the praise of the glory of His grace. Why should Omaha Bible Church do anything that it does? Why should you do anything that you do? Ultimately, ultimately in the end, it is for the express purpose, the ultimate purpose, to magnify the greatness of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, I thought we would never get there. On a practical level, we end up fleshing it out in light of what it says there. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What a great, great statement. What a great, what a great encouragement. What a great solicitation, if you will, inviting you, urging you to join and partner with God. What, what could be better? What, what greater partnership could there be? You wonder if your, your life is really going to have meaning. You wonder if your life is really going to have purpose. Well, well, I can tell you exactly how. Make sure you're on the same page as God is. Join God in doing what God does. There could be nothing greater. You can be sure that you're doing the right thing then. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, have your ultimate aim be the greatness or the magnification or the exaltation or the love of God. And you fill in the blank. Whatever you do, okay, come to church. Certainly the Bible talks about not forsaking the assembling together of yourselves. All right, that's to to glorify God. Singing songs, that's to glorify God. Giving, that's to glorify God. Listening to sermons, preaching sermons, teaching Sunday school class, greeting at the door, helping to clean, you know, church stuff. Yeah, I understand all that. And that's true and that's right. But we even go bigger than that as individuals, and it's whatever you do. And the only way something you do can't count is if it's expressly sin. So you think about right now, think about what you love to do for recreation. Think about what you love to do for fun. Think about what you do for work that maybe isn't so fun. Think about what you you love to eat. Think about what it is you love to drink. I know that's wrong because it's almost lunchtime, but oh well, I've already... Made a total fool of myself this morning in the sermon, so I'll just keep going. <laughs> you think of anything, and what God wants you to do is to take that and aim it toward one ultimate purpose, and that is to glorify God. And so you can say, God, I don't necessarily like this job very much, but thank you that you've given me this job and I can provide for my family. Or God, thank you that at least I can work and I can do this. Or I'm in between jobs. God, I need a job, but thank you that I'm looking for a job. God, thank you that you've promised me that you will always provide for me. And you can fill in the blank. It doesn't matter where it goes. And this is something I love to talk about, and I know it's right to talk about it because what we're talking about is the most important thing, the thing that God is most committed to. I would urge you, as individual Christians who make up this local church, to sanctify your life, everything in your life, for the purpose of worship. Why do you do everything that you do? Maybe you don't do it for this reason right now. Well, it's time to pray and ask God for forgiveness and repent and say, God, I can do these things for your glory and for your honor because your word tells me to. And now all of a sudden I know that I'm actually living a life worth living. And I've gotten to the point now, this has been somewhat revolutionary for me. I don't want to be presumptuous. And, and presume upon the blessing of God, but this has been helpful and new for me in my thinking, to conclude that if this is what God is committed to, first and foremost, and it is what He has called us to be committed to, first and foremost, that if in fact we're not just saying it, but we're saying it, and we're actually seeking to follow through with our, with our hearts, that we can then, I even want to be careful how I say it, but I really believe it, we can then expect God's blessing. If God is going to be committed to anything, if God is going to be behind anything, it's this. Because this is what He's behind. That's why the psalmist would say, God, I'm praying for this, that, or the other thing. God, please answer. Answer this prayer for Your namesake. If we do what we do for the sake of the name, which is to say the sake of the fame of Jesus Christ, 
why wouldn't we therefore conclude that God's in it? The God's behind it. Now, I, I realize we could try to use this as some sort of manipulation, and we're obviously not talking about that. But if we as a church truly, genuinely see this saturating the ministry, saturating our lives as individuals, and this really, genuinely, truly is the case, then we will walk in ministry and in life with a sense of confidence that we would not have had otherwise with a sense of assurance that we would not have had otherwise because we know that what we're doing is the very thing that God is committed to doing and we're simply partnering with Him. And maybe you're way ahead of me on that and you've been thinking that all along, but this is revolutionary for me. It's, it's, it's dot connecting for me. I love it. I love this. I love to talk about this. And how about I love to talk about this because I know the more I talk about it, hopefully the more people will catch on and God will be more committed to blessing us as a result. We want to be committed to glorifying God, being God-centered. Let's move on. Let's move on to a second priority, though I would like to just talk about the first. Let's go on to number two, the second priority for us as a church. It's related but not identical to the first. If we are going to seek to glorify God and honor God, then we need to see God's Word as sufficient. We need to see God's Word, the Bible, as sufficient. And I would ask you to turn to a passage of Scripture again. You probably know if you've been a Christian for longer than about five seconds. Um, But if you don't know it, that's fine. We'll allow you to catch up. And that is 2 Timothy 3. If you turn to 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3.16 is a, a classic passage regarding God's Word, but not just regarding God's Word, it's regarding the sufficiency of God's Word. And as soon as we look at this, then we'll see how these two relate. We're going to glorify God, and in our, uh, our, our pursuit of glorifying God, we're, we're going to know how to glorify God in light of what the Bible says in commitment to His Word. We'll know that that is glorifying to Him. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible is sufficient. We read there, all Scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Then verse 17 tells us the, the purpose statement behind it, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for, here's the statement of sufficiency, every good work. kind of puts you at a crossroads. The Bible claims to be sufficient. The crossroads it puts you at is you have to decide whether or not you believe that or not. The Bible claims to be sufficient for everything we would need to do as Christians. And there are certain th- certainly things the Bible doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't talk about, you know, the style of clothing we should wear. It talks about modesty. It doesn't talk about style. Some of you wish it did, so I wouldn't wear weird shirts like this, I suppose. But uh, there's a reason why the Bible doesn't talk about certain things. I believe it shows the wisdom of God in that this, even though it was given to a certain people at a certain time, it's generic enough that it can fit all people of all time in every culture, and that just shows the wisdom of God. But what we need to know to be adequate equipped for every good work is in the book. Don't get hung up on the fact that it says so that the man of God may be adequate equipped. Uh, man of God, technical term used here for the pastor. Well, borrowed from the Old Testament. Well, this is a pastoral letter. Paul was writing to Timothy, the young pastor, who would get the letter so that he would know that this is true. And what did a pastor do, especially with people who didn't have Bibles that he was shepherding? He would tell them what he learned. And so, by secondary but intentional application, this applies to all of us. It can adequately equip us for everything that we would need to do as a church and certainly everything we would need to do as individuals. This is uh, important to us. This is what some who have gone before us, but after this time, referred to as sola scriptura. Scripture alone. We don't need the Bible and another book. We don't need the Bible and another religious authority to tell us what our priorities must be. What does God's Word say? Okay, that's what it says. Therefore, we'll do it. You know how the old saying goes? The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. 
you need to change it. Because it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. (laughs) Right? The Bible says it. That settles it. That's really the way to go. Whether you believe it or not, it's just what's true. So that's what we want to do. So uh, Sola Scriptura would tell us to change that little proverb just a little bit and make it a little bit more precise. The Bible has to be valued by us. We want to value it even the way our Savior who bought the church and owns the church valued it. Even as he said in Matthew 4, 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Ultimately referring to Scripture. We've got to prioritize Scripture. We've got to have it be the final word. We have to be careful too when it comes to this. We have to not become so caught up in, in, in bad thinking that says, well, yeah, that's fine, but you know what? You can't really understand the Bible. Because there are so many different interpretations and so many different translations. And you know what? There are some things the Bible even says that are hard to understand. But even by that being stated, that there are some things that are hard to understand, it's assuming then, therefore, that it's not all hard to understand. The exception is some things are hard to understand. And so we have to be really careful that we don't somehow, uh, even though we don't mean to say it, or conclude it, we have to be careful that if we don't conclude, well, yes, this is the Bible, it's the Word of God, but nobody can really understand it, and it's so difficult. Uh, are you suggesting by, by saying that? Let's just carry it out a little bit. Are you suggesting that, that God lacks the ability to communicate? Are, are you suggesting that God lacks the ability to be clear? No, we would never say that, but in effect, that is what we are saying. And we'll say, oh, no, we're just being humble. Oh, you know, we're just fallen human beings. We could never really know. So, please be careful not to mistake what we call humility as humility when it's actually really pride. If God says something and He's communicated it, assuming that people can understand it, for me to therefore then conclude that it can't be understood is very prideful and arrogant. The other thing that it allows me to do is to say, well, we really can't understand what the Bible says, so let's talk and dialogue and let's come up with our own way to do it. It's a way for me to get my way under the guise of humility. We want to be a church that says, okay, some things are hard to understand. We'll we'll acknowledge that because that's what the Bible says. But generally speaking, the Bible doesn't say that and words have meaning and you look in context and and according to grammar and, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. I think it was Mark Twain who said, it's not the clear things in the Bible that I have a problem with. No, it's not the unclear things in the Bible that I have a problem with. It's the clear things. It's probably true. So many things are clear. Well, this relates to something else, and this will be our third and final priority we'll look at this morning. Number three, the Bible, if we're going to be a faithful church and be and do what God wants us to do, the Bible needs to be proclaimed. We can't stop with believing that the Bible is true and emphasizing the truthfulness and the sufficiency of the Bible. We have to go beyond that and say, we're going to proclaim the Bible. Proclamation carries the, the, the notion of authority. We can understand God's Word to the point where we're going to say we believe it and we're not going to whisper about it. We're going to proclaim God's Word as true and clear and authoritative. If you're in 2 Timothy 3.16, then you can just go a little bit further and realize that in chapter 4, he's still on this idea of the Bible as God's Word and the Bible is sufficient. And he carries that idea on talking to the young pastor named Timothy In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you. Notice 3.16 and 17. Keep going. We added the chapter divisions for convenience. They weren't really there to begin with. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, you pastor, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom, and I'm going to stop there rudely, 
That is to say, Timothy, I'm about ready to commission you as a pastor. I'm about ready to exhort you. And Timothy, by now you'd better be shaking in your proverbial boots. Why? Because Timothy, I'm about ready to commission you and charge you. And guess who's watching, Timothy? Jesus Christ is watching and you're going to give an account to Him someday because it's His church you're pastoring. And God is watching too. And you're going to give an account someday, Timothy. So what I'm about to tell you at the end of my life, at the end of this letter, is really, really, really important. What does he say? Preach the Word. What word is that? Well, according to 3.16, it's the Word that comes from God, the inspired Word. According to 3.17, it's the Word of God that is sufficient. Timothy, preach that Word. And when you stop and think about it, if you really believe 3.16 and 17, you, you, you absolutely, no matter what, will preach it. Right? If I really believe the Bible is the Word of God that is sufficient to change my life and to change your life and to change our lives as a church, if I really believe that, you can guarantee that I won't get up here and read the Bible and then tell you about my personal experiences. You can, I can guarantee you that I won't come up and read a passage and then talk about something else. I grew up with that. Go to church to not learn the Bible my whole life. Go to church, stand up, sit down, rah, 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 fight, fight, fight. I don't know. And then I'd be, I, I, somebody shared the gospel with me when I'm a university student. Here I am per- sharing personal illustrations. But it makes the point. <laughs> I became a Christian. The last thing I wanted to do was go to a church. Why would I want to go to a church where they read the Bible and then talk about whatever they want to talk about? Until someone helped me to grow up spiritually and learn that there are such things as good churches and bad churches and somebody pointed me in the direction of a church where they opened up, read the Bible and then explained it and then preached it so that, so that I could have my life change. Oh, can't keep me out of such a place. This is amazing. And for us as a local church, I like to tell people, if, you, if your pastor can't figure out that command, which is at the last letter ever written to pastors in the last chapter, as clear as can be, preach the word. If I can't figure that out, folks, don't trust me for anything. Don't trust me for the least thing. This has got to be a huge priority. And I realize that the church isn't only about preaching and there are a lot of other things that happen in the church, but again, it ends up setting the tone for everything. I remember when Omaha Bible Church first started. And there, was a, there was one reason I came to Omaha Bible Church. I wasn't the preacher. Ultimately, in the end, there's one reason I go to a church. Now, the other things are important, yes. What do they do with the book? Because I know if they can't figure that out, why would I want to trust their youth program? I mean, Omaha Bible Church, I, it's kind of fun in the getting started class when new people come and, and I realize, you know, Omaha Bible Church isn't perfect and we have this gap and this weakness and that's just how it goes. But, you know, almost to, almost to hopefully, you know, preventatively squelch some of the complaining, you know, I like to and, and sincerely say, you know, please help be a part of the solution and not the problem and where you see weaknesses, be careful about speaking up too loudly because we'll recruit you to help and, you know, I, to say, we, I know we have, we have weaknesses. But sometimes I like to say, you ain't seen nothing. <laughs> you should have seen when the church started, you know? I mean, there was one thing. When you were late, you walked in behind the pastor who was already preaching. You know, and on Tuesday nights or whatever, they had taxidermy classes in the same room. I mean, it was, it was weird. There was one reason why you'd show up. You know what? The guy opened the book, started preaching from Ephesians verse by verse. And you know what? I, I just... Walked in, sat down, shut up, learned something. It was good. And then by the grace of God, other things begin to be developed around that common central commitment around the sufficiency of the Bible, the preaching of the Bible. And I'm so thankful that there are a lot of other good things that are getting better and better. But we have to have a central commitment to the proclamation of God's Word. We have to. And I'm to the point now, too, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. It's fine to have someone have a doctrinal statement and you read it and say they believe the Bible. But you know what? I I believe it. At least I, I I withhold judgment. I suspend judgment. I suspend a conclusion. Let's put it that way. They say they believe the Bible. They say the Bible is sufficient. I'm going to find out 
when they open it, and I find out what they do with it once they open it. If I really believe the Bible is true, I'll preach it. Not perfectly. Not always interestingly. But you get the idea. Please do notice what he says. Preach the word. Herald, that's, that's speaking with authority. Be ready in season. That's when it's popular to do Bible preaching, because sometimes it is. And out of season, so when it's not popular. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And did you notice there that there's a negative tone at first? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So not only does the Bible talk about how pastors must preach the Word, it even talks a little bit about the tone in which they do it. For it to be faithful preaching, there has to be a degree of negativity. Reprove, rebuke. Now, it can't just be that. There has to be the positive of the positive instruction with patience, with, with, with forbearance. Because it's assuming what's true. I'm not perfect, so sometimes I need God's Word to be brought to bear upon my life to fix my, or to say, Pat, here's where your, your, your theology is wrong. Or to say, Pat, here's where your living is wrong. That's reproving and rebuking. So there's got to be a consistent negative tone. Not only negative, then the positive. And here's what is gloriously right. And, and, and here is some patience helping you along to grow spiritually because none of us have arrived as of today. And so I don't want somebody to only yell at me all of the time and only scold me all of the time. But nor do I want someone to only stroke me all of the time and tell me what a great person I am and how I'm doing all the right things. It's got to be, here's what's true, here's what's right. If you're not believing it or living it, let me help you. Let me push you, based on what the Scripture says, by preaching the Word so that you would glorify God, so that you would be doing and believing the right thing. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say in 2 Timothy 4.2, it says preach the Word. It doesn't say drama the Word. We've had up dramas at Omaha Bible Church. I like drama. We've done Easter programs where we have a drama or a Christmas skit or whatever. Please don't misunderstand. But it's never a mandate given to the church. So the regular steady diet week in and week out is the proclamation, the heralding of God's Word. And you say, yeah, but that wasn't how, that was just because it was back then. They had drama back then. They had drama in the Old Testament. I can show you examples of it. God had all the forms of communication at His fingertips and He chose to inscripturate the heralding of God's Word as the primary means of instruction here. Remember too that they had dialoguing back then? Okay? But it doesn't say dialogue about the Word. It doesn't say, uh, you know, anything like that. It's preach, authoritative, heralding God's Word. Now, I'm glad that we get a dialogue too. I, I was out here in between services, and man, there are all kinds of people dialoguing, and I hope lots of us were talking about spiritual things and, and talking about biblical things and smaller classes where we dialogue like that. And I love that. That's good. That's right. When you sit down, when you stand up, I mean, this is what we're supposed to do. But we need to be careful that we don't conclude with bad thinking, bad history, biblically uninformed. Well, they did preaching back then, but that's because people were used to it. But now it's more of a dialogue. They did that back then too, and we can do it now. But that doesn't replace... Here's what I'm getting at. It took me a long time. It doesn't replace preaching. can't replace preaching. I want someone to study God's Word prayerfully, carefully, and if they've done the work, I want them to preach. When I teach the preaching class here, I, I tell those individuals in the preaching class, you know, you'd better be humble in your preparation and you walk up to that podium with humility 
And then you get up there and the way you show your humility, if you've been studying all week and you've been preparing all week, the way you show your humility is through the bold, authoritative proclamation of the Word of God. That's the way to show the humility because you're saying this is what God says. You must believe it. You must do it. And I tell them, you know what? You've studied. You've prayed. You're prepared. Get up there and preach. None of the rest of us have. It's like a light goes off. All right. This is a time we're living in when we don't talk a lot about preaching under the name of humility because we simply want to have a conversation. And that's the big buzzword you'll hear. Conversations are great. You just can't push out preaching. Well, I want to look at one other passage and then we'll be done. And it sort of uh, wraps up all of these. And it's Joshua 22. So if you have a Bible, if you go to the Old Testament, Joshua 22. As you're turning to, to, to that passage, it's, it's kind of interesting. And, and when I, when, even when I preach these kinds of sermons, I get a little bit uncomfortable. Because I'm just so used to preaching a text of Scripture. I like it that I'm a little uncomfortable when I do a topical sermon. Because the bread and butter, the week in and the week out, I want to be exposition. Looking at things in context. And and what I've been saying for years now is I think you earn the right to preach topical sermons. Because you've preached through context. You've preached through passages and you understand what comes before and what comes after. Because it's so easy to make the Bible say whatever it is you want it to say. And so all of that to say, um, I'm even uneasy when I preach these kinds of sermons, but uh, at the same time, I think it's good and it's healthy for us and helpful for us. And even maybe for some of you who are newer, uh, this probably helps you. This series will help you a lot, maybe to understand really where we're coming from as a church. I certainly hope that it does. Well, I'm in Joshua tonight. I'm preaching, uh, in, in preaching through the Old Testament. So this has been on my mind, but there's a passage that really jumped out at me when it comes to this matter, and it'll, it'll serve as a good conclusion. In Joshua 22, verse 5, it says, Only be very careful. Okay, so only, priority, make sure you get this. Only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God. Let's stop there just for a second. Okay, we talked about glorifying God. That would be a good synonymous way of talking about glorifying God. Okay, Be very, very careful to have as your priority. That's why he starts with only. The one thing we're committed to above all other things is the glory of God or to say we're committed to, to loving God. But notice that he doesn't leave it hanging alone. Keep reading. And inseparable from that, walk in all his ways. And... Keep His commandments and hold fast to Him and serve Him with all your heart and with all of your soul. And, and what He ends up doing, in effect, is he, he's, he's using synonyms. He, he's putting these ideas together and He's forging these ideas together, but all the ideas really end up relating to a couple of things. Really, they relate to one thing. But the, the couple of things, first of all, would be love God. Have it be your priority, which is us saying glorify God. But He doesn't say somehow that is separate and distinct from doing what God says or His commands or His Scripture. No. Notice He forges the ideas together. Love God and keep His commandments and do what He says and pursue Him and cling to Him. I love the passage. I love it probably because it serves us as a good and hopefully timely corrective. Because we tend to think about loving God distinct from doing what God says. Glorifying God distinct from what God says. It's not the case. And we could look at examples that Jesus gives. He's in effect saying the same thing. Think about it with me. 
when you do what God says, when you cling to God, even using uh, some of the, the imagery there, and you trust in Him, and you're following His Word and not your own way, and you're, you're following Him, you're submitting to Him, you're glorifying Him, right? It's when I do what I want to do, and I'm going to have it my way. Who am I, who am I glorifying? Or we as a church, yeah, we know the Bible says that, but let's have a meeting, let's get together and we'll decide our way. We're glorifying ourselves. We're not really loving God in our decision making. We're loving ourselves in our own wisdom. So I love these kinds of passages that, that can help us to see, okay, yes, if it's ultimately to, glor- ultimately to glorify God, to love God, how is it that we do that? Well, one of the big ways is we put ourselves under God and we say, God, what you say, we will do. And then when we do what you say, who gets all the attention and who gets all of the glory? God does. God does. I hope and I pray that these things get emphasized all the time, apart from series like this. They should, if they're really our priorities. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that these are priorities in your life. They're not just our priorities when we gather together. Then it just becomes hypocrisy. We know the right thing to say, and we can make it look like we're doing the right thing when we're all together, because that's how we're supposed to act and talk when it's going to be really rich and when it's going to be really great and when it's truly going to glorify God and honor God is when we're living this way. God, we believe your word is true. We want to submit to what it says, showing our love and our devotion and our glorifying you. And God, that's how we live our lives. Oh, and by the way, we do gather together as a local body of believers to exalt you together, to pray for one another, to to benefit from each other's spiritual gifts. And it's simply the overpouring or the outpouring of what we've been doing as individuals. That's what we want as a church. Three out of ten. We'll see how we do next time. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this time we've had to talk about these things that are so basic and so fundamental to Christianity. And they're not new. They're things that believers have been committed to since the very beginning. And Lord, we are thankful that by your grace we might even see ourselves committed to these things. Lord, we would ask that you would continue to help us, God, to see our sin and to see where it is we're glorifying self and grow us up into becoming more and more like your Son, which we know will glorify you. Help us as a church, God. Help us to seek your glory above our own so that we might live to see another day where Christ will be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen.